Life is difficult. Things can make it easier. Whether that certain thing is a stuffed animal or a blanket, something to fiddle with to help you focus, a cup of calming tea, listening to your favorite music, smelling a certain scent, or eating your favorite food, these are all things that have a tendency to bring us comfort. And you don't want to get in the way of these things and the one who is going to them for comfort. It's more than just a thing. A songwriter sang about a tragic event for a five-year-old boy. It was the summer of 1978, and he and his sister were on a family road trip sitting in the back seat looking for ways to entertain themselves. And his kind, loving, and sensitive sister discovered a new way to entertain herself. Steal her brother's brand new comb and throw it out the window. To most people, it's no big deal. To his dad, who the son asked, can we go back and get it? He said, no, we can't go back and get it. It wasn't an ordinary comb. He had just gotten it that morning from his mom and his dad, and it was more than just a new comb, the songwriter wrote. He says it was the last great symbol of his youth. It seemed to be a tipping point in this child's life because he would never again get a joint gift from both his parents after that. His parents separated. And looking back on his life, that comb was far more than just a personal grooming device. It represented innocence, love, faithfulness, and just being a kid. And then, just like that, his sister threw it out the window, and every dearly held bit of security in life seemed to fly out that window along with his comb. And now that his comb was gone, he had nothing to which to cling. What is it that you cling to for comfort? And will it last? Or can it be thrown away just like this brand new comb? The Israelites in exile would find themselves suddenly stripped away of all comfort. They were displaced from their homes and brought to a foreign land and having to start over from scratch. Even worse, they were removed from the land of the Lord's promise, the place where the Lord had promised to be found, saying, you will seek me, you will find me here in this place. And now suddenly they find themselves cut off from God's promises and cut off from God himself. The prophets had said this would happen. They had warned them again. And the people chose to ignore the calling of the prophets, thinking they'll be just fine. However, the Lord's prophets didn't give up. They continued to call. And they continued to proclaim the excellencies of the God who continues to call them to be his people. They persisted in proclaiming the Lord's steadfast love. These words that we're about to read aren't merely words being spoken, but promises of God to heal a broken people. Are you broken today? And these promises are for you. These words of Isaiah are written before the people are exiled into Babylon. These promises would be something to keep in their minds as they are ripped away from everything else, something they could cling to once they realize how downtrodden and displaced they really are. They were more than words, they're hope. I invite you to open your Bibles up with me to Isaiah chapter 43. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. And I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word if you're able to. Isaiah chapter 43, reading verses 1 through 13. Reading in Jesus' name. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that the peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth. Lord, give us understanding to see your word and how it relates to us. Lord, how you relate to us and how we relate to you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The chapter breaks in Scripture aren't a part of the original text. Meaning you can go back in time when these passages were being written. Isaiah doesn't write and come to a stopping point and say, 43, here is chapter 43. But someone else later on decided to put those numbers in. The chapter breaks the verses so that I could say, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 43, verse 1, and you all would know how to do that. So it's helpful. But it's not part of the original text. I'm sure whoever decided to put a chapter break here didn't have any problems trying to see where the break should come from chapter 42. These verses are in stark contrast to the ones they follow. Look back at the last few verses of chapter 42, starting in verse 23. Who among you will give ear to this, this warning about the coming judgment? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? Was it not the Lord? against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they were not willing to walk and whose law they did not obey. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle and it set him aflame all around, yet he did not recognize it and it burned him, but he paid no attention. Doesn't sound a lot like Isaiah 43, does it? No, this in, in the end of chapter 42, this is God's judgment coming against his people who will not recognize him and who will not turn from their sins. These words speak of the Lord's discipline, and it's not pretty, but it's necessary. And then comes the chapter 43, and the tone of the text takes a drastic 180-degree about face. But the Lord was just described as punisher, and now... He's going to be referred to as a creator, redeemer, companion, 
and lover. To some, this might seem like an abusive relationship, that God doesn't really know how he's going to act, that God acts out of anger in one verse and tries to make it up with being all lovey-dovey and remorseful in the next couple of verses. But that isn't what this is. God had been calling his people to himself to avoid the deadly road that they insisted on traveling down. He knows the destination, and yet they continue to ignore him. They can't even say that they're blissfully ignorant. No, they're continu- they continue to willfully ignore and reject his warning. So they're not blissfully ignorant. They're blissfully ignoring what God has said, rejecting the consequences for which they would have to pay. The Lord's anger isn't unwarranted here in the book of Isaiah. Yet in their discipline, the Lord wants them to remember something very important, to remember who they are and who he is. And so he tells them. He gives them a new identity here in Isaiah 43. In verses 1 through 7, the Lord repeatedly describes himself in relationship to his people. He isn't a a distant, far-off God who has his hands off of all of our situations, but he is a God who cares and a God who is intimately acquainted with his people. He names himself the Lord. And if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that that is all caps because that word, as it's used there in the original text, is the four-letter word for Yahweh, which people would not translate Yahweh because they wanted to respect and revere the Lord's name, but this is his personal name. Remember when he gave this name to his people, to Moses there in the burning bush when they were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord reveals himself to Moses saying, you didn't know me by my name before, but now I will reveal to you that I am. This is who I am. This is the kind of God that I am. Now you will know me. He continues here in this section I'm your creator, O Jacob. I am he who formed you. Not only was the Lord the one who created his people, he also formed them. He nurtured them. He cared for them continuously. He protected them when they were helpless. He gave them food and drink when they had none. He was with them, and yes, he did also discipline them when they needed to be disciplined. He removes a people's cause for fear because he is their redeemer. He's purchased them from slavery and has set them free. They belong to him. He's called them by name. They are his. In verse 1, God reveals himself to be a personal God here. And we don't have a word in English to differentiate this, but the word that God uses in verse 1 is the singular personal pronoun. It's you. He's talking to one person. He's talking to you. Not you all. He's talking to you. He isn't talking to a group of people. He is talking to individuals here. We can look at this passage in a church service and sit back and think, yes, I know, God is talking about the remnant here. He isn't talking to me. But again, the Lord is talking to an individual. Yes, he cares for nations, and yes, he cares for whole people groups. But here he gets personal. And again, he is talking to you. Hear these words. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Yes, you. He's talking to you. The Lord continues to explain that come hell or high water, he is with you. You'll pass through the waters and not drown. Not like those chickens we learned about in Sunday school today. 
You'll walk through the fire and not be scorched. The Lord isn't taunting us to do any fire walks here or to jump into the deep end when we can't swim and say, God, you promised you're going to get me out of this pool. We can point back to times in history where God has indeed and literally been with his people through water as they walked across the Red Sea on dry land. They walked across the Jordan River on dry land. And we can also look back to our own baptisms too, where God worked through water to deliver us there. He would be with those three amigos in the fiery furnace when the time came. David wrote a psalm centuries before to God's people, reminding them of this very truth. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Wherever we go, the Lord is there. The Lord is with his people. No matter what they are experiencing, no matter where they go, he is with his people. The Lord assures his people here that he can be trusted, reminding them again who he is. The Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Then the Lord speaks redemption language in verses 3 and 4. He speaks of giving another nation in their place giving Egypt as their ransom, as their substitute. And one day God says, you won't be the whipping boy anymore. Someone else will come in and, and take your place. Another people will be lower on the totem pole than you. You won't always be the new guy in your job. Though that doesn't exactly take the sting off the current wounds as people would experience, it does give them a sense of hope in knowing that this isn't what the rest of their lives will look like. Someone else would take their spot. I will give men in your place and peoples in exchange for your life. Looking back at Israel's history, we see Isaiah's prophecy coming true. The familiar theme of substitution makes another appearance, pointing people to the Lord, your creator and redeemer, who himself has provided a substitute, who himself is your substitute. 700 years later, the Lord, the creator and the redeemer did it again. This time redeeming his people not with perishable things like silver or gold, not with another group of people, not with another nation, but with his own precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the very blood of Christ. The Lord is God. He is your creator. He is your redeemer. And you are precious in his sight. Isaiah records the word of the Lord reminding his people that there is no need to fear. He is with you. Again, whatever you're going through, wherever you may be, the Lord is with you. He's more than just a thing that you run to for comfort. He's more than a blankie that keeps you warm at night, a bottle that you drown your sorrows away, a teddy bear or a comb or anything else that you might have. He is with you and he is active and he is working. And though it didn't look like it to the Israelites who would be exiled in the near future, The Lord promises to gather his people again from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south. If these words were written back in the day, they would apply to the Lord too. There ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough to separate you from God's love. He is going to call his people back from wherever they are. And he isn't just speaking here to these specific exiles. Yes, they would be dispersed and scattered to the four winds, but God is doing something more here. Verse 6 says, The Almighty God will declare to the powers that be, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. 
He'll bring his sons and daughters from every nook and cranny. We can look at that geographically, but we can also look at that relationally. Those who are far off, those who are distant from God, those who are even opposed to God, the Lord will call back to himself. Those who are intent on running away from him, God says, come back to me, and he will draw them back. In verse 7, the intended target is greater than the national or biological Israel. He says, everyone, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. The people of God are not limited by national, racial, or geographic boundaries. This is why we are able to insert our own names here in these very promises. We are the children of Abraham by faith. We are the children of God by faith. We are united with Christ by faith. If you are a child of God, it is only through faith that we are his children. Faith is that which clings to promises, to God's promises, like these here in Isaiah 43. That they aren't just generic promises that ring true for most people, but specific and personal. Faith declares, God has called me. This is God speaking to me here. God is still about his work of calling a people to himself. As he says in Revelation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, everyone who is called by my name, he says here in Isaiah. And after establishing who he is in relation to us, the Lord calls out to assemble the blind and the deaf and all the nations together. To bring out these Israelites here who see what's going on and yet they are blinded to the reality of what's actually happening. The ones who have been hearing this message of God and yet have turned their ears off to the Lord's message. And to all of the nations, all of the Gentiles, the ones who were cut off from coming into the temple of the Lord. This is the Lord calling out to a spiritually dead people. The ones with eyes to see and yet are blind. The ones who have ears to hear and yet don't hear. And all of the nations again separated from coming to be from worshiping the Lord. All the Gentiles, the very ones cut off from the people of God, now God is calling them together. And in verse 10, he declares something absolutely absurd. You are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. And my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Did you catch who God is calling out to? Is he picking the best and the brightest? Is he taking the ones who would get an academic full-ride scholarship or the ones who would get an athletic full-ride scholarship? No, he's not picking the best and brightest. He's picking the blind, the lame, the deaf, the dumb, everyone else who is out there. God is calling out to them and saying, you are my witnesses. And you may know and believe me. As God calls these people to himself, he calls them to faith. He calls them his witnesses and his servant. And how can this be? How is it possible that these spiritually dead people can go from being blind, deaf, and dirty, cut off from the people of God, to suddenly being his witnesses and his people? How can the Lord make a believer out of pagans? How can he use them as his witnesses? How can the Lord make a believer out of religious posers? How can he do that? How can the Lord make believers out of everyone in between? And the question that we should be most concerned about today is how can the Lord make a believer out of me? 
He says in verse 11 through 13, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? How can the Lord make believers out of anyone? It's only by the grace and calling of God. And it is he alone who can make that happen. He is the one who calls his witnesses. He is the one who saves. He is the Savior. There is no other. It can be easy again for us to write ourselves out of passages like this one. We exclude ourselves from the promise of God saying, again, that's great and all, but that's not for me. That's for those people. And we'll define those people to exclude ourselves. We can point to a number of reasons why it can't include us. We aren't holy enough. We aren't faithful enough. We aren't spiritual enough. We aren't worthy. But look at who the Lord is talking to. Is he talking to a people who are worthy? Now, this is a message of comfort who is coming to an exiled people. And why are they exiled? Because they have stubbornly rejected the Lord again and again and again and again. And yet the Lord in his grace and his mercy calls out to them and says, I love you. You are mine. You are my witnesses. You are my people. These are people who have continually rejected his calling in the past, people on whom he poured out the heat of his anger and who didn't care two licks about it. It isn't about your own worthiness or acceptability. It's about who is acting. The Lord, your creator, your redeemer, your creator which you played no part in, your redeemer which you couldn't do, your savior which you couldn't save yourself from. And God has called us out of exile, out from blindness and deafness, from separation from God, and made us to be his witnesses. He has called you to be his witness. So do not fear. I have called you by name. And you, yes, you, are mine. You are precious in my sight. Again, yes, you are precious in my sight. You are honored and I love you. Do not fear for I am with you. I, even I, am the Lord. These words are true. But they are far more than just words. Through these words, God calls out to the blind and gives them sight. He calls out to the deaf and makes them hear. He calls out to the strangers and the alien, and they are no longer strangers and aliens anymore. They are his. And he calls out to you by name. You are loved, and you are his. No, these aren't just mere words. These words are everything. Let's pray.